Hey there, this is Catherine Lasota, host of the LIC Reading Series. LIC Reading Series is a monthly program in Long Island City, Queens at LIC Bar. In our podcast, each week you'll hear a recording from one of our events over the years. In this episode, you'll hear Jen Dahl, author of Unclaimed Baggage, Jacqueline Gilbert, author of Late Air, and Crystal Hana Kim, author of If You Leave Me, from an event we had on January 8, 2019. In the live reading series, the night is split into two parts, and so is our podcast. In today's show, you'll hear the readings, and in our next episode, you'll hear the Q&A with me, the authors, and our live audience. So let's jump back into the LIC bar, where I'm on stage introducing our first reader, Jen Dahl. No, I'm going to introduce you. Okay. Jen Dahl is a freelance journalist and the author of the young adult novel Unclaimed Baggage, for sale here from a storybook shop, as well as the memoir Save the Date, The Occasional Mortifications of a Serial Wedding Guest. She's written for The Atlantic, Glamour, New York Magazine, The New York Times, Topic, The Village Voice, The Week, and other publications. Unclaimed Baggage was a New York Times staff pick and a BuzzFeed Best YA book of 2018. And in her review for NPR, uh, writer Alethea Contis calls Unclaimed Baggage, quote, a magnificent gem of a story and a dense, rich, and powerfully beautiful story. I think you'll agree. Oh, wait. Just heads up. I almost forgot to say, because we're so proud we're in Queens. I can't believe I forgot this part. I make all of our readers share a little something about Queens, a little anecdote before they read from their work. So you're going to get that treat right before you hear the amazing writing of Jen Dahl. Let's give it up for Jen Dahl. Hi. I was worried about my Queens anecdote being too dirty, but then I was told that dirty is good. Um, so I was trying to remember how many years ago this was, but let's just say like I graduated from college, I moved to New York City, I started dating this guy and he lived in Queens and he lived in Long Island City. And he had a really nice apartment, like looked out at the water. It was like so different then. It was, you know, 100 years ago. But um, looked at the water and I remember for like New Year's Eve, we saw the fireworks. And, but there were two really weird things about him. The first was that all of the cheese he bought, once he opened it, he put in one Tupperware container, like just one giant Tupperware container. And Crystal, I was telling this before we started this, and she was like, so it was all like one cheese. Like it all smelled like the same cheese, which is true. It was the worst use of cheese ever. <laughs> the second thing, which is potentially weirder, is that he shaved his entire pubic region. And I'd never met such a person. Like, I was like, you know, maybe a little here and there, but like the whole thing? Like, isn't that potentially dangerous? I don't know. And I remember one time we took a shower together and he was like, here's how I do it. And I was like, this is like too much. I can't. And um, soon after we broke up. But <laughs> as I was thinking about the story sitting there, I was like, this totally relates to my book. Um, so this is the problem with writing a book. Everything relates to it. Um, 
So Unclaimed Baggage is a YA book, and it's about three teenagers who meet each other in a small town in Alabama. One is the new girl from the north, one is the um, alcoholic football player who has fallen from grace, and one is the liberal in a conservative town. And they start working together at a store where lost luggage goes to be resold. So they're like unpacking bags and taking stuff out of these bags and being like, well, this could be resold. This is hugely disgusting. Um, That can't be ever sold. And so the scene I'm going to read you is where they kind of all come together for the first time and start unpacking their first bags. Grant saunters over casually. So he says, what exactly do we do here at this garage sale? Doris brushes donut crumbs off her shirt and stands and gives him a hard look. She's not very tall, but she has presence. Okay, y'all, she says. I make a mental note to start incorporating y'all into my vocabulary. Nell, you'll be helping me go through inventory, separating the sellable stuff from the junk and listing everything on these clipboards so we can enter it into the master list on the computer later. Why don't you start with these? She points to a leaning tower of suitcases and hands me a clipboard. I stare at it like I've never seen such a thing in my life. What I'm really looking at, though, is the sheet of paper attached to it, already covered in what I guess is Doris's handwriting. Line after line of items of various worth that all went missing at some point and arrived here. Her list isn't just numbers and words, it's art, with tiny but intricate pictures in the margins and notes to the sides that make me laugh. I can't draw, I say. You don't have to, just do it in a way that makes sense to you. As long as it's legible, it's cool, she tells me. Still admiring her work, I head over to the suitcase pile, choose a bright, a big bright yellow one from the top, and dig in. Grant, says Doris, since you haven't even been properly interviewed, why don't we do that? I thought I had the job, he says. I told your mom I'd interview you. I can't just give you a job. It doesn't work that way. Cool, cool, whatever, he says, and sits down at the table like he's the bad boy in an 80s movie, turning the chair around so he looks over the back of the seat. Doris groans. What, says Grant. Who does that? Is it even comfortable? She asks. Grant, shockingly, has turned red. He gets up off the chair and turns it around the right way and sits in it. Is that better? Yes, says Doris. Thank you. Let's get started. If hired, can you produce proof that you are 16 years old or over? Yeah, he says. If hired, can you produce proof that you have a legal right to work in the U.S.? Yep. Grant is a master at the one-word response. Can you perform essential job functions like lifting boxes, moving heavy objects, and carrying out the duties of the work here, as you are aware? Sure. Do you currently use illegal drugs? What counts as illegal, exactly? (laughs) She gives him a stare down. Fine, fine. I've been known to drink and smoke on the occasion. Not currently, as in not this moment. She shakes her head but pushes on. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Not yet, he says. My next question was going to be, are you honest and trustworthy? But I'm pretty sure you just told me the truth, says Doris. She marks something down on the paper in front of her and then glances over at me. I dig back into my bag, pretending like I'm not totally eavesdropping, and pull out a pair, a bunch of sequined tops with the tags still on them, which I start to sort through. This person just went on some kind of shopping spree. I've named her and the suitcase Natasha. <laughs> Do you promise never to steal from the store because that would be really, really shitty and then we'd have to fire you and I've never fired anyone before? I sense that Doris is going off the cuff with these questions. <laughs> I will definitely not steal from the store, says Grant. What would I even take? Somebody's moth-eaten old polo shirt? A delightful bag of nails? In fairness, there's one of each right on the table in front of him. Doris frowns again. Do you promise not to drink or do drugs while you're on the job? I promise, says Grant. I find a pair of gold lame pants. Natasha is a dancer, I've decided. 
Are you generally available for shifts between the hours of 9 and 5 or 10 and 6, Monday through Friday and some Saturdays? Yes, he says. Baby, I'm free whenever you want me to be. She puts down her clipboard and gazes at him coolly for what feels like forever. He returns her look. I pull a pair of shiny high-heeled platform pumps from the bag, log them on my clipboard, and put them in the sale pile. Grant, I'm going to say it. Your mom wanted me to give you a job. She's a nice lady, and she's old friends with Red, so I will. You and I, however, are not friends, and that's fine. We can work together peacefully, but if you start drinking or smoking whatever it is you smoke here or being a sexist jerk, I will not hesitate to fire you. You can't just act like you're the king of everything the way you do at school. You do not get to call me or any other woman here baby, and no more of that clapping crap. Doris has balls, or whatever women have that's way more powerful than balls, strength. I watch and wait for him to explode back at her, but he just nods and says, yes, ma'am. And I don't even think it's sarcastic. I reach into the yellow bag again, and this time it's empty. So I put the suitcase in the for, in the for sale luggage stack, say farewell to M Natasha, and start on the next. Okay, says Doris. Okay. She puts a clipboard next to him. Good stuff goes on your list and in the sale pile. Bad stuff? Anything that's truly garbage or so gross you can't even tell what it is goes into the discard receptacle over there. She points to a huge waste bin in the far corner of the room. We don't resell food, so it's up to you what you want to do with it. <laughs> There's an even bigger dumpster out back if we need it. If you aren't sure about anything, just ask. Grant raises his hand. Yes, says Doris. Do you have a pen I can borrow, he asks. He turns his grin on her, but she stays stoic, handing him a bick from the table. He picks up his clipboard, and we all get to work. An hour and a half later, I've gone through an Amanda, a Parker, and a Roy. I've found a rolled-up Titanic poster. Vintage! Two brand-new dog toys and packaging, a chew thing that looks like a giant sausage and a stuffed eagle with an American flag in its claws. Twelve pairs of socks, different colors, no holes. Six books of various types and conditions, children's to adult. Two designer purses, leather. A new lavender bikini, still with the tags, in my size. I ask Doris if I can buy it, and she says yes. We even get a discount as store employees. Perks. Half a bag of rock-hard gummy bears. I throw these away, even though I'm tempted to try one just for the experience. Five tank tops of white, gray, and black. Six pairs of jeans, men and women's. Yesterday, Doris and I couldn't stop talking, but the presence of Grant has changed things. We're shy all of a sudden, or maybe it's that two of the people in this room seem to kind of hate each other. I turn my head back to my latest suitcase, which I've dubbed Marvin. It's full of men's business suits, each in the same dark gray color. Periwinkle blue boxer shorts, thankfully clean. Crisp white button-downs and a, an array of muted solid color ties. It's like walking into my dad's closet, except even my average businessman dressing dad has that purple tie with skulls on it that Jack and I bought him last Father's Day. Doris breaks the awkward silence. Grant, you're tall. Can you get the box up there? Top one marked Tucson. She points to a shelf in the stockroom where a row of big cardboard containers have been stashed, different airport cities written on them in Sharpie. We watch as Grant st stretches his arms up to grab the box with both hands and sets it gently down by her feet. Thanks, she says. You're welcome, he says. I take this as a positive sign. Then she grabs a knife and slices across the, the box in one brisk, badass motion. I look over at Grant, and he's looking at me with wide eyes, and I can't help it. I smile, and he smiles back. I turn back to Doris, hoping she hasn't caught this. I feel my loyalty should go to her. But she's busy pulling suitcases from the box and lining them up in a row for us to tackle. One of them is especially cute in a purple red leopard print, the sort of bag you imagine someone stylish using for weekends off in Vail or Miami. That's a total Daphne, I say. 
Huh? Says Doris. I've been naming them, I confess. The bags. They all seem to have a personality, you know? Right here, this is a Marvin. Probably owned by a banker or someone in another dull but respectful job. A dignified family man. And then I let out a scream because as I pull out the last business suit, something drops out of it that is definitely not conservative or well-pressed or boring like you'd expect from a Marvin. I've clearly underestimated Marvin because it is a sex toy designed all too realistically like a man's you-know-what. What is it? Says Doris. Are you all right? Asks Grant, who is suddenly right next to me, looking down at the plastic man part that has fallen to the concrete floor of the stockroom. He rests there casually as if it's totally cool being a representation of a penis, like it hasn't a care in the world, which it probably doesn't. Jesus, he says. You found a dick? <laughs> then Doris is on the other side of me, taking my hands in hers and squirting them liberally with a bottle of hand sanitizer. I should have given you gloves, she's saying. We have a whole box of them, just in case something like this. I didn't touch it, I say, although I accept the Purell anyway. It dropped out of the suit. You're lucky, she says. I touched a dirty diaper a year ago, and I still haven't gotten over it. I've never found a penis, though. It's not a real penis, I say, in fairness. Grant nods. She's right. That would be a truly disturbing thing to find in a suitcase. That was so great. And I was waiting with your anecdote to find out what was dirty about cheese. Oh, sorry. What? No, no, no. Your passage, no, your passage is great. It's always good to tell dirty stories and then read about penises falling out of suitcases. It's a winning combination at a reading. Take note, fellow writers. Um, no, that was great. Uh, I really was hoping something dirty would happen with the cheese. <laughs> Jacqueline Gilbert grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, running along its back roads in the Amish countryside, just like Long Island City, in a way. There's a lot of runners along the waterfront. Uh, she ran Division I cross country and track and field at Yale, where she majored in English and French. After working in book publishing for several years, she earned her MFA from Sarah Lawrence College. She currently holds a research fellowship from the New York Public Library, and her stories and essays have appeared or are forthcoming from Post Road Magazine, Tin House, Lit Hub, Long Reads, and elsewhere. Late Air, her first novel right here in the middle at Astoria Bookshop's display, was released from Little A in November. Kirkus Reviews calls Lay Air a carefully plotted and cautiously hopeful novel about ties to outlast marriage and praises Gilbert's eye for subtle mental, her eye for subtle mental states rather than shocking events. And it really is a subtly woven together. You will see, you will hear, you will hear when she reads. Booklist described as emotional, but never melodramatic and difficult to put down despite the heartbreaking subject matter. So we're going to lift up the subject matter right now for some heartbreaking <laughs> Good readings and give a big, warm round of applause from the LIC Reading Series for Jacqueline Gilbert. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you, Catherine, for having me. I'm so honored to be here. And um, I don't have a dirty story about, <laughs> about Queens. I really, I really wish it was. Um, but my story does tie into my novel, I guess, in some weird way or very direct, literal way. <laughs> But um, when I moved to the city, or maybe I would say not long after I moved to the city, I like to run around this area. And I um, used to meet a friend in the West Village, and we would be insane after work and actually run um, through Randall's Island and cross over to Astoria and get sushi at this one spot um, that had fresh mango. And I don't know the name of the place, but I look back on that time fondly and wonder <laughs> 
when I will get that kind of time back. Um, and, and, um, yeah. And then the other memory would just be running the New York city marathon two times and dreading the Queens, Queensborough bridge because it is a test of whether your muscles are going to cramp. <laughs> so, um, so I'm thinking about that a little bit as I read. Um, but my first novel is about a cross country coach named Murray. He's a, um, a Yale woman, women's cross country coach. And he's, in the scene I'm going to read, he's really beginning to lose his grip on reality. Um, and the only thing you really need to know is that um, his star runner named Becky Sanders is um, in recovery for a brain injury um, after suffering a severe accident on the campus golf course one morning. And um, the other people's names that will come up are Nancy, Murray's ex-wife, um, Anna, his second-in-line runner um, after Becky, the injured runner, and... Um, Jean, the child that he lost um, as an infant, and Rick is the name of an athletic director, and Nancy is his, is his ex-wife. But it should all make sense as I read. I just wanted to do a little cast <laughs> of Friday, 11.31 a.m. Murray cut through old campus where all of the freshmen lived, past Lamb and Wright Hall with its statues of lions and its bare dogwood trees in the courtyard, L-dub, it was called, reeking of beer and mildew. Three students were throwing a frisbee on the lawn, exaggerated wrist flicks and lunges, laughter. He noticed a young girl, hair wrapped in a silk kerchief, reading on a blanket, her tote bag bulging with books, like the one Nancy had carried around with her everywhere in case she was ever caught waiting. He paused before Battelle Chapel, a host of flyers for theater and improv comedy and poetry readings, but he found no mention of a vigil. He turned the heavy iron handle of the chapel, peering into the empty space. Inside, his eyelids twitched as he gazed up at the blue co coffered ceiling. Then at the signs of the Trinity on the pier walls, apse windows by the altar, stained glass flanking the nave. He sat down in a pew and looked up again, tracing the sunken panels, these miniature octagon shapes. He had never painted a ceiling, only the walls of rooms. First there had been yellow, then lavender, finally white. For his wife. It was February when Murray had painted it again. Nancy had said she needed to breathe. Do you mind if we set up? A large bald man in a navy t-shirt gripped a white plastic bucket. No, he said, I was just leaving. He felt as though two televisions played the same channel in adjoining rooms, broadcasted Echo. Just setting up for an information session, you're welcome to stay. The man tugged at an earlobe. If you or anyone you know is interested in the Peace Corps, it's never too late. I don't know anyone. Do you work here? The man asked. I don't, he said. Do you? You're funny, the man said. Coach, now I see it. He pointed to the XC for cross-country on Murray's jacket, the stopwatch in his hands. Murray tightened his fists, eye-locking harder on the blue sandstone walls, a wood-beamed ceiling encroaching on him. I'm John, the man said, wiping a hand on his jeans. Murray nodded. Another man, young, walked in. He didn't shake John's hand, rather he hugged him tightly. They talked about how long it had been. The train ride up, what the young man was doing with his life. Murray didn't feel himself turn the handle of the door or drifting back through the green where the English major was still reading. 
Becky's first semester had required reciting the first lines of the Canterbury Tales in Middle English. She'd volunteered a recitation for him one morning on the way to the course. She'd been giddy with the newness of college, he guessed. The first line mentioned April. He remembered nothing of the rest, the length of the journey the poem was meant to cover. Nancy had once said that inside she and Murray were opposite people. She, fueled by a vivid inner life, while he understood the world as material, he had not countered her, words broken and sawed off within him like numerated letters on a scrabble board, this game they once played over a span of weeks. Murray drove to the Walgreens nearest the hospital and walked up and down the aisles, searching discounted appliances, scanning flashlights and batteries and headphones. The watch was different from the kind he was used to, but it was enough, so he crushed the sides of the plastic with his hands, and when that didn't work, he tried tearing it apart with his teeth. I hope you plan to buy that, a voice said. A woman in a red apron, her hair black and a white, her hair black with a white skunk streak. Yes, he said several times until he reached the register where he asked for a pair of scissors. Outside the store, two seconds before the first stopwatch hit its maximum, he clutched the new one ready to start. At the exact right moment, it was a windy day and a plastic soda cap blew near his feet. He could hear sirens outside the hospital. He kept the watch by the gear shift and studied on and off the approach of five minutes, then ten, and he'd stopped the car. When he felt he could focus on the road again, he restarted the, the count. At home, he boiled water and took a shower. He thought of going back to the campus at night to see if there wasn't something else going on, if maybe the men at the chapel had been also helping set up for a campus vigil. He went to his door and peered out the tiny hole, expecting more sirens, a line of police cars, but of course he couldn't see that through a hole, so he stepped outside, his heart palpitating, breath short. He was wearing boxers, and he felt his bare legs, his cold ears. He went back inside and had to grip the kitchen sink. The tea kettle hissed. He poured tea. He turned on the news. But after 15 minutes, he couldn't sit there passively, passively watching the footage. He imagined his whole team, all of his girls, carrying a bag stuffed with little candles, rubber holders, snuffs for the vigil they might be planning. Didn't they know vigils were bad luck? Vigils suggest, suggested defeat. You had to wait to be patient for Becky to regain her strength. Murray's tracksuit had not been washed in seven days, but still he stepped back into it in the bathroom, zipping the jacket three quarters of the way up. He parted his thin hair as if it made a difference anymore. He thought of the course of driving around to, see if, to, to check for any signs of foul play. He had recorded almost every hour except between 3 and 6 p.m. when he usually had to be at practice, but today was Friday and the girls had done an easy run in the morning to save their legs. He reached for his jacket and hopped to put on his shoe. He had to sit up to tie the other one. His hands were shaking. Murray, he heard someone say, we're trying to speak. Why won't you listen? And then there she was, Becky's mouth forming unintelligible words. 
Jean hasn't crossed yet. You have to help her cross. He saw Nancy's back over the bed, rising and falling after waking from another nightmare. He saw himself zipping his jacket again and finding his clipboard, saw himself running the other way, hoping she'd fall back asleep. He hadn't noticed the extent of the apartment's silence, hadn't heard the depth of her restless mutterings, Nancy's tossing and turning through the night until she went missing, her side of the bed empty, more nights of the week than not. Her absent toothbrush. He went to his computer and turned on the reading lamp. He waited for the machine to start for the tiny hourglass to load applications onto the screen. He had saved three different messages from her in a folder. He had read them 22 different times, not to analyze them, but to affirm their existence, to consider his reply. He opened the latest one from last week. Dear Murray, it said, I am thinking of you. A message so simple it needed a simple reply. Dear Nancy... In typing, fingers twitching, same as this near-constant twitch he felt in his sleepless eyes, he began to inch toward other words, longer explanations he couldn't provide her. How can I know what you're thinking, she'd once asked him. How do you expect me to know anything? Weren't his actions enough? Everything he did, had done, had been because he loved her. She'd need only to account for his actions. If she'd added them up, she would have seen. Now he stood looking out the window. Across the street was a white house. In the night, it glowed blue. Above it, a sliver of moon. After some time, he didn't know how much, a car rolled by. It paused before a house, two tubes of light over the drive. The clock turned eight before a girl skipped out. She was wearing a sweater and blue jeans. Then a boy stepped out of the car, the engine still running. Murray had cracked open the window to hear its thrum. He watched as the girl hugged the boy. He was tall and lanky under a baseball cap. When the car sped away, Murray paced back to the kitchen. He had reheated the tea kettle and he poured more into his cup. He sat down and looked over a packet with seed times for next Saturday. He had figured Anna's performance four different ways, factoring in the time she'd taken on, she'd taken off and the time she had taken to put in, just two days until she started running again. Then he thought, if she surprised him once before, she would again. Children surprised their, their parents. His girls had always done that. He could not feel his tongue in contrast to the temperature of the tea burning it, but he hoped that if he closed his eyes and visualized Anna's strong back and thighs in uniform, her cleats digging into the dirt, no matter the time of day or temperature, his heart might steady. Then Murray saw himself. 1975. He was 19 and standing on Scranton's crushed cinder track for the mile. There had been a dozen other runners, two rows of them, and he had stood in the second row. It had been raining, water pulsing along his eyelids and down his mouth. He had tried to shake it off like a dog and then leaned in as the gunman counted 10 seconds before it was time. He could not hear the sounds as they were, but the rain, it was still palpable, spitting bullets at his ankles and knees, his hair hard and cold by his eyes. Now he had his eyes closed and he was barefoot and crouched, knees shaking as though a line had been painted on the hardwood floor in the kitchen. If he could just hear the gun, imagine his body flying through the, the room, through the room, outside to the road like a catapulted car. Maybe he could sit down and type a, a reply or pick up a phone to make a call. He'd write Lisa, Becky's mother, tell her he was sorry for anything he'd said. What had he said? Coach, he nearly shouted, eyes still closed, fists knotted by his side. Becky walked toward him, hips swinging crookedly, hands closed and twisted, mouth twisted. 
a spoon locked in her fist as she scoops cereal, a book with pages she couldn't turn by herself. From now on, would someone have to turn them? He pushed his two watches into his pocket. The library was open until midnight on a Friday, so he drove to Sterling Memorial and used a computer to write down a series of call numbers. He had checked the screen and the, and the and his bit of scrap paper and his bit of scrap paper several times, maybe four different times, to make sure he had the numbers right. Then he took the elevator up to the stacks to the 13th floor for more titles on brain injury. He tore through case studies and dense science, a memoir by a woman who had recovered full function of her brain and body, who had returned to work and achieved impossible feats. He researched the exact nature of her injury, scrutinizing the anatomy of the brain, translating what, control, what controlled what, the process involved in this woman's surgery, where the hematoma had been removed and how regions might have been rearranged around these absences. After his apartment had been emptied, Murray found a way to take up all of the extra space, filled every room with his notebooks and old mail, filled each up like a sea around him. No one visited, no one would criticize him, no one would recommend the couch closer to the television, his desk closer to the bed, his manuals that belonged on shelves, not the floor. The full rooms made it like a maze in the morning and at night on his way to bed so he didn't have to think he would tire himself stepping around these things, getting closer to that final point of exhaustion, always the one that let him sleep. Yesterday, Rick had knocked on the door to Murray's office. Printed itineraries lay over the floor and torn sheets from his legal pad, but Rick hadn't said anything about that. He'd said, Murray, I want to talk to you. Murray had sat up straight in his chair, away from the new to-do list he was making. Sure, Rick, he had said, calm as ever. Then Rick had said, Murray, there have been some complaints. Then he'd paused. I'm not talking about the accident. I'm talking about the girls. They're concerned. He'd paused again, and Murray had asked him what he meant, and he'd said, they're concerned that you're talking to yourself, mumbling things they can't hear. Murray knew it wasn't true. He told Rick, that the girls were young, that they misunderstood him. He was figuring splits. He always figured the math out loud. No, Murray, Rick had said. I've noticed it too. You're... You look like you haven't slept. Murray began to explain he was working overtime, but Rick had cut him off. We're under a lot of scrutiny right now, he said. We know this isn't your fault, but we have to be careful. Becky's injury is sensitive. Murray had felt his rage boil up. You don't think I don't know that? He'd been about to say, you don't think I'm going to go to the, get to the bottom of this, locate the criminal? But he had not yet yielded to those words, only to the silence of Rick's stern eyes. You have to hold yourself together now, Rick had said. And then, it couldn't hurt to see someone before the season gets more chaotic, or maybe take some time off. Time off? Murray had felt the words boil over, this singeing heat. He'd wanted to lean in and grab Rick by the collar, remind him there wasn't anyone to fill his shoes, that he was saving the season, the program, for, their, for that matter. If they, wanted to seal, steal, if they wanted to seal recruits, if they wanted to continue his legacy. But Murray had bit his lip hard, had gripped his pen firmer, had watched Rick just pass him, pat him on the shoulder. Think about it, Rick had said before closing Murray's door. Thank you. Thank you to Jacqueline Gilbert.
It's such an intense and crazy difficult thing to write the like unraveling of somebody's mind. It's a, it's it's a slow burn through the book. It's pretty amazing. Let's uh let's get ready for Crystal Hana Kim, guys. <gasps> yes. Okay. Crystal Hana Kim's debut novel, If You Leave Me, was named a best book of 2018 by Deep Breath. The Washington Post, ALA Booklist, Literary Hub, Cosmopolitan, and more. <laughs> it was long listed for the Center for Fiction Novel Prize. Crystal was a 2017 Pen America Dow Short Story Prize winner and has received scholarships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Hedgebrook. Oh my God, Hedgebrook looks like heaven. Is Hedgebrook heaven? Oh. oh. Was it, what's the name of the island? It's Whidbey Island, Seattle. Yeah. Oh. Right? and Gentile, among others. Her work has been published in Elle Magazine, The Paris Review, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. She's a contributing editor at Epigee Journal. Um, if You Leave Me got a starred review from Publishers Weekly, which is amazing. And in an interview with The Rumpus, the interviewer Amy Danzer writes, Kim's generosity of detail so completely transports the reader to Korea in the years 1951 to 1967. And her commitment to perspective makes for a polyphonically rich and heart wrenching experience are you guys ready to get your hearts wrenched <laughs> i am this is big 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 applause for crystal oh i'm just, i'm gonna start with a queen's anecdote so i'm really excited to read here my first queen's reading because what? yeah, yeah. Wow. because i was born in queen's so i was born in flushing hospital and i spent about like five six years of my life first years there and one of my earliest fond memories is going to Kissina Park in Flushing. Do you guys know it? It's this, I, in my mind, it's really, really big, but I haven't been there in a while, but <laughs> Kissina Park. Kiss, I thought you said <laughs> When I was three years old, I was making out with people <laughs> in the park. Uh, <laughs> that actually makes, um, that connects with what I was going to say because one, uh, my favorite memory was going to this park called Kissina Park with my parents and we would get like a loaf of Wonder Bread and go to the little pond and feed the ducks. And then at some point when I think I was like four or five, I started preschool and I learned that, I learned what the word K-I-S-S meant, right? And I, and in my mind, because I'm five years old, and my family and I, we speak Korean at home. So I thought I was the only one in our family who knew what the word kiss meant. And I realized that the word kiss was in the name Kiss in a Park. And it was this secret that I had that my parents did not know about. And sometimes it made me really excited. Sometimes I was like embarrassed because I didn't want them to find out. And whenever we would go, sometimes I would say the name like really fast so that they wouldn't notice. <laughs> uh, and obviously my parents knew more English than my five-year-old self did. But for a long time, I thought this was like my delicious secret. Um, and I really liked that memory because I think it was one of the first memories that I have of, of understanding the power of words and of paying attention to words and meanings in a way that I hadn't before. So that is my Queen's anecdote. <laughs> and I'm going to be reading from If You Leave Me. 
This is a novel about five characters that grew up, um, that are growing up during and after the Korean War. And the novel begins with a young Korean refugee. Her name is Hemi. And she has to flee her home with her widowed mother and her younger brother who's ill. And she really desires an education. She wants, she wants to make something with her life, but her choices are really limited. And then in the Busan, South Korea refugee camp, there are two young men that are vying for her attention. So there's Kyungwon, who is her childhood best friend. They used to talk about going to college together. And then there is Chisu, who's actually Kyungwon's older, wealthier cousin from Seoul. And the novel follows these three characters along with Hemi's younger brother and eventually her daughter for 16 years. I'm going to be reading from the second half of the book. I used to read from the beginning, but I got sick of it. So, <laughs> so I'm going to be reading from a section. It's 1963, so 10 years after the Korean War. And this is, a perspective, uh, this is told from the perspective of Hemi. She, at this point, has married Jisoo, that wealthier man from Seoul, and they have three daughters. And then Kyungwon, her childhood best friend and Jisoo's cousin, after the war, he doesn't return home, and he kind of distances himself from these people. And then one summer, he returns for a couple of weeks and then very abruptly leaves. So the section that I'm reading is Hemi thinking about Kyungwon's leaving. Hemi, 1963. I bled yesterday from the cuts on my hands, a careless knife. A week ago, tripping over the stones, Mita had placed around the house in the shape of clouds. The sharp taste when I bit down on my tongue the morning Kyungwon had left, like the discarded sea ration tins we used to lick during the war. He had once dared me to touch the silver-sharp edge with the tip of my tongue, a blood-red river. I paced the girls' room, trying to count the days since I had last bled between my legs. Mida, surrounded by colored pencils, mumbled at her picture. When I passed, she tugged at the hem of my humble skirt. I want a cookie. She held up a wet palmful of crumbs. More for me? Her hair, the oily stink of it, made me want to retch. I don't have any right now. My stomach roiled at the sudden flare of smells, grease, spit, boiled beef bones from the kitchen, a vile sweetness I couldn't place. The thought of the outhouse soured my spit too. Mommy needs to go outside. Mira grabbed my leg. Take me. Sitting at my feet, she looked tiny, my youngest, a dreamer. I must have been dreaming too. Months, months since I had bled. Mommy? Mira toddled after me. I staggered to the tree in the backyard and retched. Green potato sprigs and white rice, my early breakfast. The acid stench so nauseating, I had to lean against the stone wall. The air itself seemed to knock me unsteady. I slid to the ground. Mira wrinkled her nose and hid her face behind her hands. Mommy's sick? 
Shush, please. I laid my cheek against the cool stones. I can't think. You're going to be all right. She stroked my ankle. I don't think so. I cupped her hand with my own. Even gentle Mira had left me suffocating for a year after she was born. I sank in guilt, confusion, fear. How unlike the other mothers I seemed to be. I had never felt more captive than following childbirth. How could I have not kept track of my bleeding? For months now, I had been wretched with mourning, my mind like spiderlings bursting from their egg sac, scattering in all directions, forgetting what I was doing even when I was doing nothing. Look, Mira pried a rock from under one of the tree's roots. It was gray with a small white center, like a nipple or a flower. I bring in house? Our damn house. I walked the length of every room every day, with Mida following, sleeping, slung on my back, hip, or chest. I treaded the wooden floors of our scythe-shaped home. When Chien and Sori returned from school, I made dinner. When Chisu returned from work, I made more dinner. When I felt as though my mind would disappear, I ate or walked or stared at the sky through the leaves of our one lonely tree. I didn't allow myself to think about Kyungwon. I was like a mouse in an earthen jar, crawling up sloped, impossible walls. What if I ran away right now? I pointed to the roads beyond the stone wall. What would you do if I left Mira? She rolled the rock between my toes, up my foot. Where are you going? I'm hungry. I wanted to cry and scream and burn the fear that roiled inside me. The air felt all too all wrong, too thin or too thick for me to breathe. I picked up Mida and threw her stone into my vomit. I'm going to tell you a secret. She smiled like an idiot child and grasped my nose. I think I'm pregnant. The morning Kyungwen had left, I returned from my search to find Jisoo waiting for me at the front entrance. He looked hungover and miserable. As I approached the hem of my hanbok muddy, my feet bare, he turned away from the embarrassment of me, unmoored. Have you seen Kyungwan? I asked. Did you see him this morning? I stared at Chisu's twitching mouth. His eyes slid over mine, refusing to catch. The blurred ankles, ears, silhouette of the man who was my husband. He didn't speak. And I realized he knew. I waited for him to drag me by the hair to call me a whore. I would laugh at him until he released me. Why was it unthinkable for me to love someone when he slept with other women whenever he desired? He came home smelling of their perfume, their lipstick smeared on his ears, the back of his neck along the seams where he couldn't see, but the wife could. I stared at him and readied myself. He looked beyond me, 
his shoulders raised, as if there was something worth seeing in the distance. Kyungwon left, some sort of emergency, he told me this morning. I searched his face, what kind of emergency? How the hell should I know? I tried to think, I didn't understand. My face crumpled and a small gasp escaped my mouth, my body revealing too much. I pressed a hand to my eyes. Chisu cleared his throat. The girls are hungry. I need to go to work, I'll see you this evening. I nodded and tried to will myself back into the house. I took a few steps, forcing my feet to rise and land, but I couldn't help myself. I grabbed Chisu's shoulder. Is he returning soon? What did he say exactly? I need to find him. I turned toward town, letting go, hurrying again, lifting my skirt to run. Chisu yanked my arm with his thick, stout fingers. Anger fired his cheeks, mouth, and eyes until he looked right at me. Did something happen last night? I tried to rearrange my features into a look of contempt, except my body didn't feel like my own, the fear slippery in my throat. What do you mean? I asked. I'm not an idiot. He shoved me into the stone wall, his hands grinding my shoulders, pinning me. I couldn't breathe. How hard he pushed until I felt all the bones in my back, a long curved spine he could break. He wanted to hurt me and was scared of what that meant about me, us, Kyungwen. Don't lie to me, Hemi. What did you do? I laughed as loud and hard as I could. What are you talking about? I whipped his arm off me, both of us now heaving with fear. Sori was crying in her room. She said she was supposed to go hiking with him. That's why I'm asking. I rushed past him into the house. Don't walk away from me, he called. What kind of uncle leaves after making a promise like that? Chisu followed me into our room. The stench of him was everywhere. I pointed at the brimming basin, at his acrid green vomit. You're disgusting. Thank you. LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Our theme music is by longtime LIC resident Pat Irwin. <laughs>